Hello and good afternoon. I'm your host today, Abner Belsky, and we are back with another episode on Abner Sports Throwdown. Today, I have a very special guest with me. Please welcome Mr. Sherrod Blakely, who's an MBA writer for Bleacher Report, as well as one of the best journalists and professors at Boston University, in my opinion. Thank you so much, Mr. Blakely, for joining me on my podcast today. So let's begin. First question is, how did you get drawn to the sports media world? And did you have a role model that helped you that helped guide you towards this line of work? Um, I, I guess um, for me, it probably started with just an English teacher in 10th grade who um, thought it would be a good idea if I thought about a career in sports journalism. I, we had an assignment to do that weekend, and I wrote about a Miami Dolphins-Pittsburgh Steelers football game. And he really liked the way I, I wrote that story. And up to that point, I was not one of his better students in English class. And truth be told, I did not like English. I did not like writing. I was more of a math, science, engineering uh, guy. And and so I, I wrote about what I enjoyed, and I, I enjoyed watching football. And, and that was really the kind of the, the seed planted, if you will, for me to consider a career in sports journalism. And as far as role models, um, the, the, the only real role model that I had that was really just kind of steady in my life was my dad. Uh, and it wasn't so much a role model for specifically for sports journalism or anything like that, but just whatever I wanted to do, do it and give it my all. Uh, don't leave anything left in the tank when it's all said and done. Uh, go all out. And, and so that was kind of how I approached sports journalism and how I've approached most of the things in, in, in my life is just, you know, you give it your best and whatever happens, that's, that's what's meant to be because you don't want to have regrets. Uh, we all to some degree have those, but you want to minimize those as much as possible. And so for me, you know, that was the example that that was set forth for me from day one. And it's, you know, it's in his, um, his legacy is just kind of really is, been instrumental to me continuing to just kind of elevate and and do different things in the sports journalism world yeah that's really great and that's a um and personally i think it's an amazing philosophy and i thought it was so interesting how you started you started out not enjoying uh english or literature and then you slowly uh grew to uh enjoy it more and you wrote the paper and now you're here. So that's awesome. Um, so the next question is, uh, after you graduated from Newhouse, which is one of the top communication programs in the country, what was your first job? And can you tell my audience and I how you sort of climbed the ladder uh, of your industry? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I, I was kind of a go all out kind of guy. And, and, and the Newhouse School, which is at uh, that's Syracuse University's communication school, I um. I was fortunate enough to uh, to attend Syracuse University's Newhouse School on a full academic ride, and and in order to get that, I, I had to basically uh, compete against kids throughout the city of Syracuse for one scholarship. And uh, when I want something, uh, and it's in a competitive environment, and all the playing field is level, uh, I feel good about my chances of coming out on top. And I was fortunate. To, to get a scholarship at 10 Syracuse University on a full academic ride. And part of that process involved interning at the local newspaper, which is called the, the Syracuse Post Standard. And during that internship, uh, I learned about the entire newspaper industry. And 
that was great experience. But at the end of my uh, my junior year, you know, they they offered me a job, and I didn't see that coming because I was absolutely planning to just kind of look and see what else was out there. But they they made a great offer, and my job my initial job was officially was called a um, a general assignment reporter, but basically you're you're covering anything and everything under the sun that's sports related. Anything from like a blacksmithing competition to badminton to New York State basketball championships. It was anything and everything. And I loved it uh, because at that point in my career, and even to this day, there's a lot of value in just wanting to learn. Uh, being finding yourself challenged in ways that you aren't accustomed to learning how to get out of your comfort zone learning how to become comfortable with being uncomfortable that was one of the great lessons that i learned in my time at syracuse university and you know in my time afterwards when i was in the working force uh, but my first job was a general assignment reporter where i was just covering everything and part of that um again is just being comfortable with trying different things that you've never done before because you know it's it's really not only was applicable to just journalism but just applicable to life i mean whether you're an engineer whether you are a doctor whether you are you know a mechanic there are going to be aspects of the job that you are not going to be fully comfortable with and familiar with but if you're if you build up to being comfortable with being uncomfortable it makes those times go by a lot faster and frankly become more manageable yeah no for sure and getting that experience under your belt that's at like such a young age must have been uh very valuable to you as you said so i think um it's just super important to do that um so next question is while you covered the detroit pistons earlier in your career you practically had a front row seat to one of the most famous sports uh, moments ever the malice at the palace can you tell me a little bit about that what the game was like the environment your reaction to it all well let me, let me correct you on, on one thing it, it was not I, I didn't practically have a final seat i was on the front row uh back in, in those times they had the local media sit on press row so where you see the scores table the, the announcers and all that you also had all of the local media so i, I was on the front row when that happened wow and it was one of the most amazing moments and i don't say that in a good way uh that i've ever experienced uh there's you often hear people talk about how time slows down when in certain moments and i never believed that until malice at the palace because i distinctly remember it well first of all it was a friday night and for, for those of, of you who are thinking about getting involved in, into newspapers, uh, Friday nights typically are earlier deadlines because there are more papers that they're trying to get out and, and things of that nature. So it was an early deadline night and the game started a little bit late. And so around midway through the fourth quarter, it was pretty clear that, that the Indiana Pacers were going to win that game. And because of that, we're able to basically you know, pretty much have the story written and just need to punch in the final score and we're good to go. And so I'm I'm pretty excited about this because Friday night deadlines are they're just not your friend. And so we were looking for this game to be over fairly soon. And as I'm putting the finishing touches of my story, I see some object come out of the stands on the corner of my eye to my right. And I don't think anything of it because I'm just thinking that well maybe that's just like you know, some of the lights in the building reflect a certain way and they're getting this image. But then I look over 
and I see Ron Artest, who now goes by Metal World Peace. And he's getting up and he goes behind. He, he was sitting on like a, uh, sitting near the, the scores table. He gets up, goes behind and starts running in my direction. But he's not running at me. He's just running towards me. And I'm looking at him. And even though he's going like a million miles an hour, it looks like he's going like one mile every day. It was slow. It was <laughs> like he was walking in sand. And I see him go up into the stands and all of this is happening really quickly, but it feels as though it's not. It was just the most surreal thing I'd ever seen. And then, you know, teammate Steven Jackson goes up to the stands and they're beating. And it feels like this is just a bad dream. I mean, because I've never seen anything quite like this. And, and I've never seen anything like this when I've played in, in parks and pickup ball and in different neighborhoods. I've never seen this type of just melee. And you've got players trying to separate other players. Uh, you've got coaches trying to, to pull their players off of uh, fans because they know that this is going to be a bad thing when all, when everything, when the dust settles. And... That night was just uh, it. Uh, there are little, there's some things that you know. I, I don't think most fans realize transpired because of of what happened at the palace. And one of them is the fact that when you see teams go onto the court now, if you notice, there's like a almost like a tarp over that walkway, and that's because at the palace. When they were leaving, when they and the pace of the players were leaving, people were throwing things at them just nonstop. And from that point on, the league created these, you know, you don't you can't do that now. I mean, you literally can't do that, even if you wanted to. Uh, and there's, there's other obvious rule change uh, that they look to implement to just cut down on, on the fighting. That's why the game is not nearly as physical as it used to be, in, in part because they, they're afraid that it could get a little out of hand and the palace, the mouse of the palace is kind of the blueprint for this is what happens when you allow the game to get too out of hand. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's just, like you said, an incredible experience, but uh, a very, I guess, traumatic one to certain fans and stuff, but must have made for an incredible story. Um but yeah, that's incredible. I I can't even picture having like front front row seats as you said to that game. That's awesome. Um. So the next question is: I know it's way too early to call, but it's always fun to ask. In your opinion, who do you think is taking home the championship this season? Well, I mean, to your initial point, it is pretty early, and there's so many teams that you know again are nowhere close to being as good as I know they will be. Uh, later in the season, and then obviously after their players, you know, develop a little bit better chemistry. But I, I would say right now, going into where we are right now, I would say the team, even though they they're not playing great basketball, um, I think the Milwaukee Bucks look very much like the team that's going to repeat. Uh, they did a really good job in the offseason of keeping their core guys together, and I'm talking specifically about Giannis Antetokounmpo as well as Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday. And those three guys are signed for not just this year, but at least the next two years after this year. So when you've got your core guys in 
toe for that amount of time and you already have the experience and benefit that comes with winning a championship, you are going to be a team to be reckoned with. And so you don't have the same kind of learning curve that a lot of teams do when they're trying to add talent and things like that. So uh, right now, I would say Milwaukee is the team to uh, that should be winning a, cha- winning a championship for a second in a row. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you there. Um, especially when Giannis was out with his injury, Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday stepped up to the challenge. And uh, sadly, unfortunately for me, beat out the Hawks, but uh, it was a great series. And they've proven that they can step up when needed. So I I really like that pick. I think it's a very strong pick. Um, So kind of adding on to that, with kind of the old guard uh, slowly – starting to be pushed out, such as LeBron James, Stephen Curry, Chris Paul. Which players do you think will step up and kind of emerge to become the new face of the NBA? Well, you, you just kind of touched on a guy that, that comes to mind right away, and that's Trey Young in Atlanta. I mean, what he did in the playoffs was just incredible. And it certainly it, it raised his profile, not only of just being a really dynamic scorer, but also a leader. Uh, I think that was one of the question marks about Trey Young. You know, not just when he came to the league, but just what he's been able to do in his first formative years in the league is can he impact winning? He can score, he can, you know, hit the logo threes and do all those really awesome things. But can he lead a team to a deep playoff run? Can he be that type of difference maker? And he's shown the ability that he can. Uh, I look at him as certainly a you know, future face of the league. Uh, Luka Doncic in Dallas is another one. Uh, that you got to look at Devin Booker in Phoenix. I'm a big fan of his. Uh, I'm I'm looking at you know Lamelo Ball in Charlotte. You know the brand new rookie of the year. Uh, he just knocked down a three pointer as we speak. Yeah. Uh, and and so I, there, there's that's the really cool thing about the NBA. Not just now, but just it's just historically. There's always uh, that next one coming up. There's always two, three, four, five guys. And Jason Tatum, another one uh, at for the Boston Celtics, I should mention as well. There's just a a nice collection of talent that's just growing before our eyes and will keep the NBA, you know, in the um, in the forefront as a league of talent, a league that will give people something that they want to engage and watch and, and, and really just embrace. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with you there. Now, what do you think about John Moran? Now, he he obviously has the ability to be showy. He makes the crazy dunks, he makes the crazy passes, you've seen it before, but do you think he'll be able to be a sustainable player? Because when he came back from his injury, it took him a little time to rebound from that, and that was just a minor one. Yeah, I do. I I think he's going to be, you know, a perennial all-star, a guy that in 10, 12 years, you know, we'll be talking about him as a likely Hall of Famer. He's that good. Uh, He is the closest thing I have seen to Allen Iverson since Allen Iverson. Really? Uh, and it, the size, the speed, the quickness, the ability to to finish in traffic, the ability to knock down threes. Uh, and, and last but certainly not least, he's shown a willingness to get better. And, and his growth, um, that's what's going to really separate him over time. The ability to just keep getting better, keep showing himself as a 
a game changer. Um, I'm, I'm a big John Morant fan and, and just kind of kicking myself a little bit for not mentioning him <laughs> one because of how good he is. But two, he's, he was my first pick in my fantasy league. Ah, really? Year. So I really, I, I'm, I'm really not giving him the, the just do that he deserves for sure. <laughs> okay. So I know I didn't, I didn't originally put this in the questions, but uh, I think it needs to be brought up as well. What do you think about the Lakers? I mean, they recently added Russell Westbrook, but he's historically known for not exactly making his team better, but putting up incredible individual stats. You have LeBron James, Anthony Davis. You have all these other – Carmelo Anthony, you have all these other stars. But do you think they'll have the chemistry to make a deep playoff run or even a uh, gain a title? Well, the, the challenge that they're going to have is can they, one, develop chemistry, but also maintain it long enough with the guys they have? Because one of the things about older players in the NBA is that father time is not the friend. For father sure. time is trying to sideline them as quickly as he can. And that's my biggest concern with uh, with, with those guys. You know, I had to actually – I talked with Carmelo Anthony. Uh, I wrote a piece for Ebony.com on Carmelo and his, his new book. And him and I, we talked about this Lakers team, this season specifically. You know, and he gave the analogy that, you know, there's like a, a, a kitchen full of amazing chefs. And you don't tell, you know, and, and you know a, someone who's been in the kitchen for many, many years that, oh, you're too old, you can't cook anymore. No, they just go there and, and cook up. Uh, amazing meals and i'm listening to him tell me this and i'm like there's 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 a lot of truth in what he's saying but here's the difference when you are in a kitchen all the chefs have to work together they have to have certain roles that they play they can't just all cook in great food they some have to cook some have to wash the the ingredients others have to you know put it in the oven there's roles that they have to play and i don't know if this lakers team has the kind of players that can embrace a diminished role, because that's the thing that is often lost when these super teams come together. And that is the desire to sacrifice. You cannot win if all those involved are not willing to sacrifice. And I'm not convinced that the Lakers are there. I mean, they, they lost uh, two of their first three games and the one game they won, it was because basically John Morant missed a free throw late in the game. Had he made that, it probably would have went to overtime. And who knows what would have happened then. But they are a team that is precariously close to being either exceptionally good and making a deep playoff run, or they may not make the playoffs at all. Um, I think they're good enough to do that, but I just don't, I, I don't trust them to figure out how to play well with one another. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm just not sold on. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And, I mean, Going back to the chemistry thing as well, uh, Dwight Howard and Anthony Davis got into a little scuffle in a game a few nights ago, and I don't, I agree with you where they're either going to make a very deep playoff run or they're not going to make the playoffs at all. And I think there's a lot to be said about super teams, and I think the only, one of the only times that's worked before is uh, in Golden State, and that was just, the chemistry there was phenomenal and they all trusted one another. So you need every piece of the puzzle to work uh, when there's super teams involved. 
Yeah, and you also need a little bit of luck too. And, For and sure. That's the, even if you've got great talent, you're still going to need a little bit of luck. I mean, you look at a team like Golden State when they won their first title. Every team that they played that year in the playoffs had their starting point guard miss either the entire series or some of the series. So they never saw a team that had their full complement of players throughout the entire series. And and again, that's something that they had no control over. But there's there's no doubt that that certainly impacted them in a positive way. And and again, that's that's one of the, the X factors that always comes into play when you talk about winning a championship. You've got to get some breaks that you cannot control. Yeah, no, that's totally right. And luck is a part of making a deep playoff run, and as well as just like being a, being as successful on the A team. And I mean, you saw that with uh, the Hawks a lot, even uh, the Suns in uh, in the first in a couple of the first uh, in the first round and of the of last year's playoffs. So it's just uh, it, uh, luck is a huge. Uh, plays a huge role. Uh, yeah. So the next question is, so I want to talk about the Celtics for a second because I know you cover them a lot, and I feel like I, I just – we got to cover that. So uh, you have a very strong Jason Tatum uh, who's only getting better, and he'll probably, like you said, be a future Hall of Famer or be one of the great uh, – one of the best uh, in the league in a few years. But after him – there's a drop off, I would say, in talent. Not that there's there's good role play, role playing guys and stuff like Al Horford, uh, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, like those guys. But there's a big drop off in raw talent. So pretend you're the GM of the Celtics right now. What kind of things would you do to make them title contenders? Well, the thing about being a title contender is it's there's no like magic wand that you can swirl and it's going to make it happen. You've got to give yourself as many opportunities to be great as many nights as possible. Unless you've got a Kevin Durant, a LeBron James, a, you know, one of those just you know um, all-time great players on your roster right now, and they don't have that. Tatum is very good, and Jalen Brown is very good, and beyond that, they've got some decent players. So if, if I'm the GM, my thing is this. I, I want to just give myself a chance to be successful. And the way that you do that is you've got to have guys that can grind it out, knock down a few open shots, and just give yourselves the best possibility to win. And so in, in constructing the team, I'm not looking for the, the guy that's flashy. I'm looking for the guys that just make plays and can make open shots. And so that's where my focus will be on just get have one or two things that they do extremely well, and let's see if we can put them in situations where they can use those skills, have those skills amplified, and we do whatever they're not strong at. We've got guys who can address those weaknesses so that we can have a team that is dependent upon each other and not a team of independent players who are just kind of looking for their own shot and, and doing their own thing. Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot to be said about that. And uh, a ton of uh, NBA champions have just had been consisted of players that just can uh, are just phenomenal, the fundamentals and nothing else. Now, in the upcoming free agency, would you sign anyone in particular or just in general have those players that can 
uh, hit a nice jump shot and make layups and stuff like that and put up consistent uh, statistics. No, I, I mean, I think when I look at free agency, a lot just depends on what the NBA, just depends on how much salary cap space you have. And certainly, the you know, the Celtics, they have made some moves to try to give themselves a little bit more flexibility going forward. Uh, but I, I think that the biggest thing for them is that, you know, the, the Celtics are one of the more one of the younger teams in the NBA. I mean, you have that kind of youth. You want to see it develop. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, with them, they've got to operate on a couple of different uh, plateaus, if you will. There has, at one level, they have to develop their young players because uh, that's going to be their future. And on another level, you've got to be open to the process of adding some more established talent to the mix because I think the past few years, one of the problems with the Celtics is that they've had a lot of young players, not enough veterans. They've gone about trying to change that this year by ha- bringing back an Al Horford, by bringing back in, in his cancer, uh, guys that have been with the program before but had left for, for various reasons. So the ability to have just so a little bit more experience is, is definitely something that can, can play to their strengths and play to their advantage going forward. Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing, like bringing back Al Horford, that kind of having that experience, he's had playoff experience, he's an all-star, he's consistently put up phenomenal statistics, and even Ennis Cantor, he has had the best career, but he's put up like, uh, he, he's put up consistent uh, stats and stuff that you know you can rely on him, and they can just bring experience to the team um to mentor and develop those young players such as Jason Tatum. So I totally agree with you there. Um so now um the next question is earlier in your career you covered college basketball and now you cover the NBA. Um which do you like better and in your opinion what are the biggest differences within the game and just reporting in general? Well the, I would say this there's a this couple things there. First the actual game that's being played, uh, you if you've covered college basketball and you've covered the NBA, you can there is a clear difference in the athleticism of the players at each level. I mean, the top athletes at the college level, when you see them initially as pros, they're not nearly as impressive. Uh, the NBA has some phenomenal talent, guys that can leap, jump, run, do things at a level that you just don't see every day. So there's a definite clear and undeniable difference in terms of the actual way that those players at the the professional level and those at the college level play. Now, beyond that, uh, there's not a ton of difference. I mean, if you're reporting on a college basketball game and you're reporting on an NBA game, now there may be some subtle differences in terms of access to players and things of that nature, but by and large, it's very similar to what you see at the pro game. Yeah, I'm, that's um, that's very interesting, actually, because I thought it would be a little different, but that's that's really interesting. And then what about for from a journalist standpoint, you covering the uh, NCAA versus the NBA now? Like, what how what are the biggest differences in I guess reporting, like interviews, like exclusive stuff? Well, you know, when you talk about exclusives and things like that in, in sports show, it's very, uh, it's a lot harder in the pandemic because you just can't see people the way you're used to. You can't 
reach out and have a conversation or strike up a conversation and 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 let it kind of go from there so there are some definite differences uh in terms of how you do it but ultimately the goal is is the same and that is to tell a story that's what we do as sports journalists i mean we're storytellers and sometimes that storytelling comes in the form of breaking news sometimes it comes in the form of a very kind of long uh prose of you know stories that that people have kind of have to sit down and and, and digest because they're <laughs> very lengthy and you know and, and there's everything that's in between you know those two two extremes that you you're writing about so it's it's not you're just trying to really be the best storyteller you can be because that is what's going to keep you active engaged and, and frankly enjoying this profession uh, on a lot of days when it's not going to be so much fun yeah and those are i agree with you there the biggest difference is um and yeah i i think uh especially with the pandemic going on it's like you said it's very difficult to get that kind of face-to-face um feeling and stuff like even now like you and me are talking on the phone but it it like having a face-to-face conversation is obviously more um enjoyable for the audience and for the people speaking. So I totally agree with you there. Um, next question is, I typically like ending my interviews off like this. So if you have one piece of advice to give to young aspiring uh, journalists, or to my audience in general, what would that be? Read everything, write about everything, and experience everything. Uh, th- th- it's one of the, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest things that I think young journalists kind of lose sight of is that, you know, they want to be a sports writer, they want to be in front of the camera, but there's so much that goes into just being a journalist that I think they often overlook. And so that's why, like, I, you know, even though sports is what I do, I read CNN, I read Fox News, I read The Onion, I, I read lots of different types of, of journalism and communication uh, because I want to keep learning and that that's really what it's about. It's about a desire to keep learning, keep growing and keep pushing yourself to be better the next day than you were today. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I'm sure my audience will appreciate that. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Blakely, for joining me on my podcast today. It was truly an honor and a pleasure having the opportunity to hear about your journalism career, and talk a little basketball with you. That is Abner Belsky interviewing Sherrod Blakely, who is an NBA writer.